Welcome to Views and Abused Music Podcast. My name is Scott, and first thing is if you listen to this podcast with your kids, then I just warn you right now that this episode is rated PG, as I do use one swear word, only because it's the name of an album. That's my early warning for you, so now let's get on to this episode. I'm going to talk about why I buy albums instead of singles, but could there only be one option in the near future? Also, I will be giving sales figures for the year ending 2017. Now let's move on with an update about the podcast and future, future episodes. First update is the podcast can now be found on Spotify. That makes 10 podcast apps that used and abused can be found on. At the end of the episode, I'll reveal all of them. Now to the pressing issue that I forgot about, and that is with monsoon season in full bloom here in Arizona, episodes may not come out every week. However, if things change, I will try to be more active on News and Abuse pod Twitter page with giving updates. So please make sure you are following me on Twitter. You can also find the link in this episode in the episode notes. Now let's move on. I'll be changing this day in music. Before I would just choose either the year of the album I was talking about or something that I thought would be interesting to know. However, starting with the next episode, I'll be doing a decade style of this day in music. Example, since this year is 2018, it would be like if there was something for 1948, 58, 68, 78, 88, 98, so on and so forth. Now let's get on with what we are here for, and that is episode eight, singles or albums. Music recording sales or record sales is an activity related to selling albums, singles, or music videos through record shops or online music stores. The music recording sales reached its peak in 1999 when 600 million people spent an average of $64 in buying records, bringing a total of $40 billion in sales of recorded music. Sales continued declining in the 21st century, and since 2015, streaming has overtaken sales as a primary way of consuming recorded music. The collapse of record sales also made artists rely on touring for most of their income. According to the Guinness Book of World Records, Michael Jackson's 1982 album Thriller remains the best-selling album in history, with an estimated 66 million copies sold worldwide. Elton John's Candle in the Wind 1997 is the best-selling physical single of all time with 33 million copies sold. Although precise worldwide sales figures is hard to obtain and it is widely acknowledged that the Beatles have sold more records than any other artist in the history of recorded music. Before the existence of of the recording medium and its player, the music industry earned profit through selling musical compositions on sheet music. The very first sales chart published by Billboard magazine in the United States was the Sheet Music Bestsellers chart. Following the invention of the phonograph by Thomas Edison in 1877, the music industry began hiring singers to record songs made by composers. Due to the length limit of recording media, singles were the only available commercial releases. In, the 1900, in 1900, the U- United States recording sales is estimated at about 3 million copies. The music industry continued its growth, and by 1921, the value of record sales in the U.S. reached $106 million, with 140 million records being sold. Album sales were first reported by Billboard magazine on March 24, 1945. 
However, the album definition at the time was barely boxes containing a set of several singles, such as Glenn Miller by Glenn Miller, as well as selections from Going My Way and Merry Christmas by Bing Crosby. Technological developments in the early 20th century led to the development of the vinyl LP, which stands for Long Playing Record, as an important medium for the recorded music. I will be using the letters LP instead of Long Playing from here on out of this episode. In 1948, Columbia Records began to bring out the 33 and a third RPM 12 inch extended play LPs that could play as long as 52 minutes or 26 minutes per side. Musical film soundtracks, jazz works, and thematic albums by seniors such as Frank Sinatra quickly utilized the new longer format. Billboard launched its first regularly published weekly albums chart, best selling popular albums, on March 24, 1956. During the 1950s and in, into the 1960s, 45 RPM 7-inch single cells were considered the primary market for the recording industry. While albums were a secondary market, the careers of notable rock and roll performers, performers such as Elvis Presley, were pr- driven primarily by single cells. Album sales reached its peak in English-language popular music from the mid-1960s to the mid-2000s also known as the album era. We'll talk about this a little later, in which the album was a dominant form of recorded music expression and consumption. In 1986, Dire Straits' album Brother in Arms became the first album in history to sell over 1 million copies in the compact disc format. Again, I will only be using the letter CD for compact disc. Aside of paid advertising in print, or broadcast media, radio airplay is one of the most important tools to sell records. A research commissioned by one of the major label groups stated that, and I quote, four out of five music purchases can be traced to radio airplay, end quote. In 2004, Prince became the first major artist to bundle his album, Musicology, with tour ticket purchases, giving copies of the album to each audience upon entrance to the venue. Those copies were counted as sales for the album on the Billboard 200 chart during its corresponding week of each concert. This strategy led Billboard and Nielsen SoundScan to tighten up their policy on how tickets bundled with albums would count for charting purposes. In 2007, Record Store Day was inaugurated to bring together fans, artists, and thousands of independent record stores across the world. The 2013 event of Record Store Day was credited with the highest U.S. vinyl sales, and the 2014 edition resulted in independent retailers recording the highest percentage of physical album sales since the sound scan system was introduced in 1991. At times, labels overshipped records to retailers due to the high expectation of commercial response. However, when records failed to be sold to consumers, Retailers may return to unsold copies to the label. In January 2008, the media reported that over 1 million unsold copies of Robin Williams' album, Robbie Williams' album, sorry about that, Rude Box, were sent to China to be crushed. EMI owner Guy Hans said, and I quote, roughly 85% of what EMI does get to release never makes a profit. 
in part because of the cash spent signing bands and partly due to ill-made bets on the number of CDs the market requires for particular acts, end quote. In 2011, Amazon sold an estimated 440,000 copies of Lady Gaga's Born This Way in its first two days at a price of 99 cents. This promotional campaign cost caused a loss of over $3 million for the company. In 2014, U2's album, Songs of an Innocence, was released for free on iTunes. Apple's deal with U2 and the band's label, Universal Music, which stands to lose more than a million full-price sales because of the free download offer, guarantees $100 million worth of high-profile marketing for the album. Now, what are singles? And of course, I could give you just a basic answer. But we don't want to do that. Let's dig a little deeper. In music, a single is typically a song rec- recording of a pure tracks in an LP record or album or an extended play or EP, which I will use from here on out, the letters EP. This can be released for sale to the public in a variety of different formats. In most cases, a single is a song that is released separately from an album although it usually appears, also appears on the album. Typically, these are the songs from albums that are released separately for promotional uses such as digital download or commercial radio airplay and are expected to be the most popular. In other cases, a recording released as a single may not appear on an album. The term single is sometimes regarded as a misnomer since one record usually has two songs on it. One, when considering the A and B sides, in 1982, CBS marketed one-sided singles at a lower price than two-sided singles. As digital, digital downloading and audio streaming have become more prevalent, it is often possible for every track on the album to, be all, to also be available separately. Nevertheless, the concept of a single for an album has been retained as an identification of a more heavily promoted or more popular song or group of songs within an album collection. Despite being referred to as a singles, singles can include up to as many as three tracks on them. The biggest digital music distributor, iTunes, accepts as many as three tracks less than 10 minutes each as a single, as does popular music player Spotify. Any more than three tracks on a musical release or 30 minutes in total running running time is either an EP or if over six tracks long, an album. The basic specifications of of the music single were set vague in the late 19th century when the gramophone record became to supersede phonograph cylinders in commercially produced musical recordings. Gramophone discs were manufactured with a range of playback speeds from 16 RPM to 78 RPM and in several sizes. By about 1910, however, the 10-inch 78 RPM shellac disc had become the most commonly used format. The inherent technical limitations of the gramophone disc defined a standard format for commercial recordings in the early 20th century. The relatively crude disc-cutting techniques of the time and thickness of the needles used on record players limited the number of groups per inch that could be inserted on the disc surface, and a high rotation speed was necessary to achieve acceptable recording and playback fidelity. 78 RPM was chosen as a standard because of the introduction of the electrically powered synchronous turntable motor in 1925, 
which ran at 3,600 RPMs with a 46 semicolon one gear ratio, resulting in a rotation speed of 78.26 RPM. With these factors applied to the 10-inch format, songwriters and performers increasingly tailored their output to fit the new medium. The three-minute single remained the standard into the 1960s when, avail- when the availability of microgroove recording and improved mastering techniques enabled recording artists to increase the duration of their recorded songs. The breakthrough came when, with Bob Dylan's Like a Rolling Stone, although CBS tried to make the record more radio-friendly by cutting the performance into halves and separating them between the two sides of the vinyl disc. Both Dylan and his fans demanded that the full six-minute take be placed on one side and that radio stations play the song in its entirety. Now here are different audio formats, two of the physical singles. Singles have been issued in various formats, including 7-inch, 10-inch, and 12-inch vinyl disc, usually playing at 45 RPMs, 10-inch shellac discs playing at 78 RPM, the cassette, CD singles, and 7-inch plastic flexi discs. Other less common formats include singles on digital compact disc, sorry, digital compact cassette, DVD, and Laserdisc, as well as many non-standard sizes of vinyl disc, 5-inch, 8-inch, etc. Some artists release singles on records, a trend more common in musical subcultures. Let's go over each format. The 7-inch format. The most, most common form of the vinyl single is the 45 or 7-inch. The names are derived from its play speed, 45 RPM, or the standard diameter, 7 inches. The 7-inch 45 RPM record was released March 31, 1949 by RCA Victor as a smaller, more durable, and high-fidelity replacement of the 78 RPM shellac discs. The first RPM, 45 RPM records were monoroll, with recordings on both sides of the disc. As stereo recordings became popular in the 1960s, almost all 45, 45 RPM records were produced in stereo by the early 1970s. Columbia Records, which had released the 33 and a third RPM 12-inch vinyl LP in June 1948, also re- released the 33 and a third RPM 7-inch vinyl singles in March 1949, but they were soon eclipsed by the RCA Victor 45. The first regular production 45 RPM record pressed was Pee Wee the Piccolo, pressed December 7, 1948, at the Sherman Avenue plant in Indianapolis. The first release of the 45 came March 29, 1949, in seven translucent colors, one for each type of music, dark blue for light classical series, light blue for the international series, yellow for the juvenile series, bright red for folk series, deep red for classical series, green or teal for country series, and black for popular series. Since all 45s were released simultaneously with the 45 player on March 20, on the March 29th date, there was plenty of information leaked to the public about the new 45 RPM system. RPM system. Through front page articles in Billboard magazine on December 4th, 1948, and again on January 8th, 1949, RCA was trying to, to blunt the lead Columbia had established in releasing their 33 and a third LP system back in June 1948. 12-inch format, although 7 inches remained the standard size for vinyl singles, 
12-inch singles were introduced for use by DJs and discos in the 1970s. The longer playing time for these singles allowed the inclusion of extended dance mixes of tracks. In addition, the larger surface area of the 12-inch disc allowed for wider grooves, larger amplitude, and greater separation between grooves, the latter of which is, results in less crosstalk. Consequently, they wore better and were less susceptible to scratches. The 12-inch single is still considered a standard format for dance music, though its popularity has declined in recent years. The video format. A video single is a music single in the form of a videotape, mostly VHS, but occasionally Betamax and or Video 8, also on Laserdisc and now DVD and Blu-ray. In 1983, British synth-pop synth pop band the Human League released their first commercial video single called The Human League Video Single on both VHS and Betamax and was only sold in the UK. It was not a huge commercial success due to the high retail price of £11 compared to around £2 for a 7-inch vinyl single. Next one is the radio single. Physical singles continued declining in the United States and many record companies stopped releasing them altogether to concentrate more on album sales. Since the establishment of the Billboard Hot 100, singles were not eligible to enter the chart unless they were available to purchase as a physical single. By the late 1990s, several popular mainstream hits never charted on the Hot 100. No Doubt's 1996 hit, Don't Speak, spent 16 weeks at number one on the Hot 100 Airplay chart, but it never charted on the Billboard Hot 100. On December 5, 1998, Billboard changed the rule to allow Airplay-only songs onto the chart. Aaliyah's Try Again in 2000 was the first single ever to reach number one on the Billboard Hot 100 based solely on radio airplay. A radio single is referred as, a, as an airplay single, especially by Billboard. A song is considered a single by the time the label officially releases a song to radio known as Impact Date or Radio Date. The Digital Single The internet era introduced music download and streaming which make it possible for every track on an album to also be available separately. Nevertheless, the concept of a single for an album has been retained as an, as an identification of a more heavily promoted or more popular song within an album collection. The demand for music downloads skyrocketed after the launch of Apple's iTunes Store, then called iTunes Music Store, in January 2001, and the creation of portable music and digital audio players such as the iPod. In September 1997, with the release of Duran Duran's Electric Barbarella for paid downloads, Capitol Records became the first major label to sell a digital single from a well-known artist. Previously, Geffen Records also released Aerosmith's Head First digitally for free, and in 2004, the Recording Industry Association of America, or RIAA, which I will refer to them from here on out, the RIAA introduced digital single certification due to significant sales of digital formats, with Gwen Stefani's Holla Batgirl became the RIAA's first platinum digital single. In 2013, the RIAA incorporated on-demand streams into the digital single certification. The sales of singles are recorded in record charts in most countries in the top 40 format. These charts are often, often published in magazines and numerous television shows and radio programs count down that list. In order to be eligible for inclusion in the charts, the single must meet the requirements set by the charting company, usually governing the number of songs 
and total playing time of the single. In popular music, the commercial and artistic importance of the single, as compared to an EP or album, has varied over time. Technological development, and according to the audience of particular artists and genres, singles have generally been more important to artists who sell to the youngest purchasers of music, young teenagers or preteens, who tend to have more limited financial resources. Perhaps the golden age of the single was on was on 45s in the 1950s to early to the early 1960s in the early years of rock music. Starting in the mid 60s, albums became a greater focus and more important as artists created albums of uniformly high quality and coherent themes, a trend which reached its apex in the development of the concept album. Over the 1990s and the early 2000s, the single generally received less and less attention in the United States as albums which on compact disc had virtually identical production and distribution costs, but could be sold at a higher price because most retailers primary, primary methods of selling music. Singles continued to be produced in the UK and Australia, surviving the transition from compact disc to digital download. The discontinuation of the single has been cited as a major marketing mistake by the record companies considering it eliminated an inexpensive recording format for young fans to use to become accustomed to purchasing music. In its place was the predominance of the album, which alienated customers by the expense of purchasing in expensive format for only one or two songs of interest. This, in turn, encouraged interest in file sharing software on the internet like Napster for single recordings initially, which began to seriously undercut the music recording market. Dance music, however, has followed a different commercial pattern. And the single, especially the 12-inch vinyl single, remains a major method for which dance music is distributed. Single sales in the United Kingdom reached an all-time low in, Jan in January 2005 as the popularity of the compact disc was overtaken by the then unofficial medium of the music download. As a result, downloads were gradually introduced into the UK singles chart from April 2005 to January 2007. Sales gradually improved in the following years, reaching a record high in 2008 and that further being overtaken in 2009, 2010, and 2011. Portable audio players, which make it extremely easy to load and play songs from different artists, are claimed to be the major factor behind this trend. A related development has been the popularity of mobile phone ringtones based on pop singles, and on some modern phones, the actual single could be used as a ringtone. In September 2007, Sony BMG announced they would introduce a new type of CD single called Ringles for the 2007 holiday season. The format included three songs by an artist, plus a ringtone accessible from the user's computer. Sony announced plans to release 50 Ringles in October and November, while Universal Music Group expected to release somewhere between 10 and 20 titles. In a reversal of this trend, a single has been released based on a ringtone itself, the Crazy Frog Ringtone which was a cult hit in Europe in 2004, was released as a mashup with Alex F. in June 2005, amid a massive publicity campaign, and subsequently hit number one on the UK charts. On April 17, 2005, official UK singles charts added the download format to the existing physical CD singles. Charles Bar Barkley was the first act to reach number one, selling downloads alone in April 2006. It was, was released physically the following week, and on January 1st, 2007, digital downloads, including unbundled, unbundled album tracks, became eligible from the point of release, 
without the need of an accompanying physical copy. Now we have a better understanding of the history and what is a single. Now let's dig deeper into an album. An album is a collection of audio recordings used as a single item on CD, record, audio tape, or another medium. Albums of recorded music were developed in the early 20th century, first as books of individual individual LP, individual 78 RPM records, then from 1948 as vinyl LP records played at 33 and a third RPM. Vinyl LPs are still issued through the 20, in the 21st century. Album sales have most have mostly focused on CD and MP3 formats. However, vinyl sales have been on the rise in recent years. The audio cassette was a format used alongside vinyl from the 1970s into the first decade of the, of the, of the early 2000s. An album may be recorded in a fixed or mobile recording studio, in a concert venue, at home, in the field, or a mix of places. The time frame of, for completely recording an album varies between a few hours and several years. This process usually requires several takes from di- with different parts recorded separately and then brought or mixed together. Recordings that are done in one take without overdubbing are termed live, even when done in a studio. Studios are built to absorb sound, eliminate reverberation, so as to assist in mixing different takes. Other locations, such as concert venues and some live rooms, allow for reverberation, which creates a live sound. The majority of studio recordings contain an an abundance of editing, sound effects, voice adjustments, and etc. With modern recording technology, musicians can be recorded in separate rooms or at separate times while listening to the other parts using headphones, with each part recorded as a separate track. Album covers and liner notes are used, and sometimes additional information is provided such as analysis of the recording and, and lyrics or librettos. Historically, the term album was applied to a collection of various items housed in a book format. In the musical usage of the word, it was used for collections of short pieces of printed music from the early 19th century. Later collections of related 78 RPM records were bundled in book-like albums. One side of a 78 RPM record could hold only about three and a half minutes of sound. When long-playing records were introduced, a collection of pieces on a single record was called an album. The word was extended to other recording media, such as CDs, mini-disc, compact audio cassette, and digital albums as they were introduced. The LP record, or 33-3 RPM microgroove vinyl record, is a gramophone record format introduced by Columbia Records in 1948. It was adopted by the record industry as a standard format for the album. Apart from relatively minor refinements and the important latter additions of stereophonic sound capability, it has remained the standard format for vinyl LPs. The term album has been carried forward from the early 19th century when it had been occasionally used in titles of some classical music sets such as Schumann's album or the young Opus 68, a set of 43 short pieces. When the 78 RPM records came out, the popular 10-inch disc could only hold about three minutes of sound per side. Also, almost all popular recordings were limited to around three minutes in length. Classical music and spoken words items generally were released on the longer 12-inch 78s, about four to five minutes per side. For example, in 1924, George Gershwin 
recorded a drastically shortened version of the 17th minute Rhapsody in Blue with Paul Whiteman and his orchestra. It was released on two sides of Victor and ran for 8 minutes and 59 seconds. Deutsch Gramophone had produced an album for its complete recording of the opera Carmen in 1908. German record company Odeon released The Nutcracker Suite by Tchaikovsky in 1909 on a four double-sided disc in a specifically designed package. This practice of issuing albums does not seem to have been widely taken up by other record companies for many years. However, HMV, or known as His Majesty's Voice, provided an album with a pictorial cover for the 1917 recording of The Mikado. By, uh, by about 1910, bound collections of empty sleeves with a paperboard or leather cover simil- similar to the phonograph album, photograph album were sold as record albums that customers could use to store their records. The term record album was printed on some covers. These albums came in both 10-inch and 12-inch sizes. The covers of these bound books were wider and taller and than the records inside, allowing the record, to be, the record album to be placed on the shelf upright like a book, suspending the fragile records above the shelf and protecting them. In the 1930s, record companies began issuing collections of the 78 collections of 78 RPM records by one performer or of one type of music in specifically assembled albums, typically typically with artwork on the front cover and liner notes on the back or inside cover. Most albums included three or four records with two sides each, making six or eight compositions per album. When the 12-inch vinyl LP era began in 1949, the single record often had the same or similar number of tunes as a typical album of the 78s and was still often referred to as an album as i still are today with the advent of the set l of the lp a 33 to third micro groove vinyl disc introduced by columbia records in 1948 the term was adopted to a single disc which held as much music programming as at least four 78s obscuring the metaphor the term was extended to other recording media such as the compact audio cassette cd mini-disc, digital, and digital albums as they were introduced. As part of a trend of shifting sales in the music industry, observers feel that the early 21st century experienced the death of the album. While an album may contain as many or as few tracks as required, in the United States, the Recording Academy's Rules for Grammy Awards state that an album must comprise a minimum total playing time of 15 minutes with at least five distinct tracks or a minimum playing total playing time of 30 minutes with no minimum track requirement in the united kingdom the criteria for the uk album charts is that a record rec, a recording counts as an album if it either has more than four tracks or lasts more than 25 minutes sometimes shorter albums are referred to as mini albums or ep if an album becomes too long to fit onto a single vinyl record or CD, it may be released as a double album where two vinyl LPs or compact discs are packaged together in a single case, or a triple album containing three LPs or compact discs. Recording artists who have an extensive back catalog may re-release several CDs in one single box with a unified design, often containing one or more albums in this scenario these releases can sometimes be referred to as two or three furs or a compilation of previously unreleased recordings. 
These are known as box sets. Some musical artists have also released more than three compact discs or LP records of new recordings at once in the form of box sets. Although in that case, the work is still usually considered to be an album. Music or sounds is stored on an album in sections termed tracks, normally 11 or 12 tracks. A music track, often simply referred to as a track, is an individual song or instrumental recording. The term is particularly associated with popular music, where separate tracks, also known as album tracks, the term is also used for other formats such as EPs and singles. When vinyl records were the primary medium for audio recordings, a track could be identified visually from the grooves, and many album covers or sleeves include numbers of the tracks on each side. On a compact disc, the track number is indexed so that the player can jump straight to the start of any track. On digital mu music stores such as iTunes, the term song is often used interchangeably with track regardless of whether there is any vocal content. A bonus track, also known as bonus cut or just bonus, is a piece of music which has been included as an extra. This may be done as a marketing promotion or for other reasons. It is not uncommon for to include singles as bonus tracks on reissues of old albums where those tracks weren't originally included. Online music stores allow buyers to create their own albums by selecting songs themselves. Bonus tracks may be included if a customer buys a whole album rather than just one or two songs from the artist. The song is not necessarily free nor is it available as a standalone download, adding also to the incentive to buy the complete album. In contrast to hidden tracks, bonus tracks are included on track listings and usually do not have a gap of silence between other album tracks. Bonus tracks on CD or vinyl albums are common in, J in Japan for releases by European and North American artists. Since importing international copies of an album can be cheaper than buying a domestically released version. Japanese releases often feature bonus tracks to incentive, as an incentive for domestic purchases. Again, like the singles that we just talked about, albums also have different formats that have been used over time. The vinyl LP records have two sides, each comprising one half of the album. If a pop or rock album contained tracks separately, released separately as com commercial singles, they were convenient conventionally placed in a particular position on the album. A common configuration was that to have the album let off by the second or third singles followed by a ballad. The first single would lead off side two. In the past, many singles such as the Beatles' Hey Jude and Bob Dylan's Positively 4th Street did not appear on albums. But others such as the Beatles' Come Together and Dylan's Like a Rolling Stone formed part of an album released concurrently Today, many commercial albums of music tracks feature one or more singles, which are released separately to radio, TV, or the internet as a way of promoting the album. Albums have also been issued that are compilations of older tracks not originally released together, such as singles not originally found on albums, B-sides of singles, or unfinished demo recordings. Album sets of the past were se sequenced for record changers, in the case of a two-record set, for example, sides one and four would be stamped on one record, and sides two and three on the other. The user would stack the two records onto the spindle 
of an automated record changer with side one on the bottom and side two on the other record on top. Side one would automatically drop onto the turntable and be played. When finished, the tone arm's position would trigger a mechanism which moved the arm out of the way, dropped the record with side two, and played it. When both records had been played, the user would pick up the stack, turn it over, put them back on the spindle, sides three and four would then play in sequence. Record changes were used for many years of the LP era, but eventually fell out of use. The 8-track tape, formerly called Stereo 8, commonly known as the 8-track cartridge, 8-track tape, or simply 8-track, is a magnetic tape sound recording technology popular in the United States from the mid-1960s to the late 1970s. The format is regarded as an obsolete technology and was relatively unknown outside the United States, the United Kingdom, Canada, and Australia. The compact cassette, also known as a cassette, was a popular medium for distributing pre-recorded music in the late 70s through the 1990s. The very first compact cassette was introduced by Philips in August of 1963 in form of a prototype. Compact cassettes became especially popular during the 1980s after, after the advent of the Sony Walkman, which allowed the person to control what they listened to. The Walkman was convenient because of its size and device, and the device could fit in most pockets and often came equipped with a clip for belts or pants. Compact cassettes also saw the creation of mixtapes, which are tapes containing a compilation of songs created by an average listener of music. The songs on the mixtape generally related to one another in some way, whether it be a conceptual theme or an overall sound. The compact cassette used double-sided magnetic tape to distribute music for a commercial sale. The music is recorded on both the A and B side of the tape, with cassette being turned to play the other side of the album. Compact cassettes were also a popular way for musicians to record demos or demo tapes of their music to distribute to various record labels in hopes of acquiring a record contract. The sales of compact cassettes eventually began to decline in the 1990s after the release and distribution of CDs. After the introduction of CDs, the term mixtape became to apply to any personal compilation of songs on any given format. Recently, there has been a revival of the compact cassettes by independent record labels and do-it-yourself musicians who prefer the format because of its difficulty to share over the internet. The CD is a digital optical disc data storage format that was co-developed by Philips and Sony and released in 1982. The format was originally developed to store and play only sound recordings, or CD-DA, but was later, later adapt, adapted for storage of data, CD-ROM. Several other formats were further derived from these, including Write Once Audio and Data Storage, or CDR, Rewritable Media, CDRW, the Video Compact Disc, VCD, Super Video Compact Disc, SVCD, the Photo CD, Picture CD, the Compact Disc Interactive, CDI, and Enhanced Music CD. The first commercially available audio CD player, the Sony CDP-101, was released October 1982 in Japan. Standard CDs have a diameter of 4.7 inches 
and can hold up to about 80 minutes of uncompressed audio or about 700 MIB, known as Management Information Base of Data. The Mini CD has various diameters ranging from 2.4 to 3.1 inches. They are sometimes used for CD singles, storing up to 24 minutes of audio or delivering device drivers. At the time of the technology's introduction in 1982, a CD could store much more data than a personal computer hard drive, which would typically hold 10 megabytes. By 2010, hard drives commonly referred or offered as much storage space as 1,000 CDs. While their prices had plummeted to, to common commodity level, in 2004, worldwide sales of audio CDs, CD-ROMs, and CD-Rs reached about 30 billion discs. By 2007, 200 billion CDs had been sold worldwide. From the early 2000s, CDs were increasingly being replaced by other formats of digital storage and distribution, with the result that by 2010, the number of audio CDs being sold in the U.S. had dropped about 50% from their peak. However, they remained one of the primary distribution methods for the music industry. In 2014, revenues from digital music services matched those from physical format sales for the first time. Most recently, the MP3 audio format has matured, revolutionizing the concept of digital storage. Early MP3 albums were essentially CD rips created by early CD ripping software and sometimes real-time rips from cassettes and vinyl. The so-called MP3 album is not necessarily just an M in MP3 file format in which higher quality formats such as FLAC, FLAC, and WAV, WAV, can be used on storage media that MP, that MP3 albums reside on, such as CD-R-ROMs, hard drives, flash drives, or flash memory examples, thumb drives, MP3 players, SD cards, etc. Now, we'll focus on the contents of the album, which are usually recorded in a studio or live in concert, though may be recorded in other locations, such as as home, as with J.J. Kale's Oki, Beck's Odelay, David Gray's White Ladder, and others. In the field, as with early blues recordings in prison or with mobile recording units such as the Rolling Stones Mobile Studio. Most albums are studio albums. That is, they are recorded in a recording studio with equipment meant to give those overseeing the recording as much control as possible over the sound of the album. They minimize external noises and reverberations and have highly sensitive microphones and sound mixing equipment. In some studios, each member of the band records their parts in separate rooms or even at separate times while listening to the other parts of the track with headphones to keep the timing right. Concert or stage performances are recorded using remote recording techniques. Live albums may be recorded at a single concert or combined recordings made at multiple concerts. They may include applause and other noises from the audience, comments by, by the performers between pieces, improvisations, and so on. They may use multi-track recording direct from the, sta the stage sound system rather than microphones placed among the audience and can employ additional manipulation and effects during post-production to enhance the quality of recording. Comedy albums, in particular, are most often recorded live because the audience reaction is part of the cue that the comedian the comedian is succeeding. The best-selling live album worldwide is Garth Brooks' Double Live, which shipped over 10.5 million two-CD sets 
in the United States alone as of November 2006. In Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Albums of All Time, 18 albums were live albums. A solo album in, in popular music is an album recorded by a current or former member of a musical, gr musical group, which is released under the artist's name only, even though some or, or all other band members may be involved. The solo album appeared as an early as the late 1940s. A 1947 Billboard magazine article heralded Margaret Whiting huddling with Capitol execs over her first solo album, on which she will be backed by Frank DeVol. There is no formal definition setting forth the amount of participation a band member can solicit from other members of his band and still have the album referred to as a solo album. One reviewer wrote that Ringo Starr's third venture, Ringo, and I quote, technically wasn't a solo album because all four Beatles appeared on it, end quote. Three of the four members of the Beatles released solo albums while the group was officially still together. A performer may record a solo album for a number of reasons. A solo performer working with other members will typically have full creative control of the band, be able to hire and fire accompanists, and get the majority of the proceeds. The performer may be able to produce songs that differ widely from the, from the sound of the band with which the performer has been associated or that the group as a whole chose not to include in, one, in its own albums. Graham Nash of the Hollies described his experience in developing a solo album as follows, and I quote, The thing that I go through that results in a solo album is an interesting process of collecting songs that can't be done for whatever reason by a lot of people, end quote. A solo album may also represent the departure of a performer from a group, as in April 27, 1993, former Motley Crue lead singer Vince Neil released his first solo album titled Exposed. Also, for those that remember David Lee Roth leaving Van Halen after their 1984 titled album and releasing his EP, Crazy from the Heat, on January 28, 1985. A tribute or cover album is a collection of cover versions of songs or instrumental compositions. Its concept may involve various artists covering the songs of a single artist, genre, or period. A single artist covering the songs of various artists or a single artist, genre, or period or any variation of an album of cover songs which is marketed as a tribute. I personally own two tribute albums. The first one I own was released on June 21st, 1994. It's called Kiss My Ass, which is classic Kiss regrouped. And the last one I bought was Nashville Outlaws, a tribute to Motley Crue, which was released August 19th, 2014. What is the album era? The album era was a period in English-language popular music from the mid-1960s to the mid-2000s, in which the album was, dominant, was a dominant form of recorded music expression and consumption. The origins of the album era are from the 1960s to the 1990s. Let's dig a little deeper into this era. The dominance of the single as a primary medium of creative expression and music changed with the release of several albums in the 1960s such as A Christmas Gift for You from Phil Spector, 1963, The Beach Boys' Pet Sounds, 1966, The Mothers of Inventions' Freak Out, 1966, and The Beatles' Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, 1967. In reference to The Beatles and Beach Boys' mid-1960s work, writer Bill Martin noted, and I quote, 
In the wake of their albums, many rock musicians took up the complete album approach, end quote. According to David Howard, writing in his book, Sonic Alchemy, and I quote, pop stakes had been raised in the stratosphere, end quote, by the Beatles' 1965 album, Rubber Soul, resulting in a, in a shift in focus from singles to create albums without the usual filler tracks. In January 1966, Billboard magazine cited that the initial U.S. sales of the Beatles' 1965 album, Rubber Soul, 1.2 million copies over nine days, as evidence of teenage record buyers increasingly moving towards the LP format. In the U.S., no singles were released from the album, which writer David Leaf says created the, and I quote, perception that their new work should be viewed as a whole. It introduced the possibility to the recording industry that the 45 RPM disc, permanent, permanent for a decade, might soon give away to a new king, the album as a work of art, end quote. During Pet Sounds, composition and production, Beach Boys band leader Brian Wilson Found the, found the American version of Rubber Soul to be, be, and I quote, a collection of songs that somehow went together like no album ever made before, end quote, which inspired Wilson to briefly shift his focus for, from singles to albums. The Beach Boys became the strongest selling album act in the UK for the final quarter of 1966, dethroning the three-year reign of data bands such as The Beatles. Rolling Stone assistant editor Andy Green felt that Sgt. Pepper's, and I quote, was the beginning of the album era. It was the big band, big bane of albums, end quote. The mid-1960s to the late 70s was the era of the LP, the gold, and the golden era of the album. According to BBC4's The Golden Legend, I quote, these were the years when the music industry exploded to become bigger than Hollywood, end quote. This period, especially the 1970s, is also called the album rock era. Music critic, music critic Dave Marsh has called Jimi Hendrix's 1967 Purple Haze the, and I quote, debut single of a rock album era, end quote. While Stephen Thomas Erlewine called Lou Graham's 1987 Midnight Blue the last, and I quote, last great single of the album rock era, end quote. Along with the LP record, the eight-track tape was another format popular in the United States in this period. After the fall of the LP record sales at the end of the 1970s and the rise of the first cassette, then eventually the CD as a dominant format for recorded music saw the end of the LP-driven golden age of the album. The album cons consolidated its dominance of the rec recorded music market. Seven-inch vinyl single sales were dropping and were almost totally displaced by cassette singles by the end of the 1980s. Yet, these were never popular as 7-inch singles, and the subsequent CD singles never amounted to a significant threat to the dominance of the album. The primary threat, threat to the album's premise in the 1980s and early 1990s came from MTV, also known as music television. It was quickly recognized that, and I quote, after the album rock era of the 1970s, MTV helped return the hit single to promote promise as a pop marketing tool, end quote. The decline of the album era, or better called death of the album, is a phrase used to describe the perceived decline of album sales in the 21st century, sometimes attributed to internet sharing and downloading and the changing expectations of music listeners. 
album sales more than halved from 1999 to 2009, declining from a from a 14.6 to 6.3 billion dollar industry, as opposed to releasing an album. Some bands have begun releasing a series of singles or EPs as a way to combat combat the average person's short attention span. By the middle middle of the 90s, single song delivery of music to the consumer was almost dead, at least in the United States. In 1988, Billboard magazine ended the requirement of a physical single for charting on its Hot 100 chart after several of the year's major hits were were not released as singles. But despite the dominance of the CD, technological changes quickly turned the tables. In 1999, the internet peer-to-peer file-sharing service Napster allowed internet users to easily download single songs in MP3 format. By early 2001, Napster use peaked with 26.4 million users worldwide. Although Napster was shut down in 2001 for copyright violations, other music download services took its place. In 2001, Apple Inc.'s iTunes service was introduced and the iPod, a consumer-friendly MP3 player, was released later that year. This and other legal alternatives, as well as illicit file sharing, continued to drop to depress sales of recorded music on physical formats. By 2006, downloaded, downloaded digital single sales outnumbered CD sales for the first time, and buyers of digital music purchased singles over albums by a margin of 19 to 1. Even music industry executives were forced to admit that the album was on its way out. And I quote, for some genres and some artists, having an album-centric plan will be a thing of the past, end quote, capital E-M-I-C-O-O, Jeff Kempler said. Other warnings were more dire. Media researcher Aram Seinrich bluntly predicted that, and I quote, the album is going to die. Consumers are listening to playlists, end quote. On their mp3 players with consumers abandoning albums performers started concentrating on dishing out singles as opposed to churning out albums critics of the trend argued that single songs and i quote never truly showed an artist's true prowess and every singer or songwriter proved to be a one-hit wonder end quote here's something to think about eventually everyone will be releasing singles instead of albums and future generations won't have shows that have one or two artists where the opening act has either 30 to 45 minutes set and a headliner has one and a half hours set. But they will see the recreation of tours like the Winter Dance Party Tour, which had four acts on the tour. This tour started in January 1959, or festivals like Download in the United Kingdom or Rocklahoma in the United States. Now, just to clarify, I want I used the Winter Dance Party tour as an example of artists who had played shows without an album to support the tour. If you're not familiar with this tour, this is the tour that is known for the death of Buddy Holly, Richie Valens, and J.P. the Big Bopper Richardson on February 3rd, 1959, near Clear Lake, Iowa. Also playing that fateful night were Frankie Sardo and, and Dion and the Belmonts. And no, I'm not saying we'll see the death of any artist in the near future near future due, due to not releasing albums. I use this as an example since there were five different artists playing roughly 15-minute sets and Buddy Holly had about 25 to 30-minute set to close the shows during this tour. Today's festivals don't really tour the country or world. Rocklahoma and download festivals only happen once a year. As the album artists go away, 
festivals will have to bring in more artists to play to be able to have three days of shows with different artists, which will which will also which could also lead to less people being able to see their favorite artists live under the festival format. Again, these ideas are of are of my own opinion. Why would I rather buy albums instead of singles, especially in this digital age where purchasing one song is easy and cheaper? But here's my reason. I remember having 45 RPM singles. I had cassette singles. I had even had some CD singles. You'd play on the 45s, you'd play one song, then flip the 45 over to hear the other song. In the 80s, 45 RPM records were becoming a theme of the past, and record companies introduced a cassette single, which, again, would either have one song per side, sometimes two songs per side, or even the same song but different mixes. When CDs became popular, then they gave us a CD single, which would have anywhere, anywhere from two to four songs, or, again, one song with multiple mixes. But regardless of the different mixes, you still had the same lyrics. When I started getting, when I started buying albums, I'm not really getting, I mean, I've got albums in the 70s on LP. And again, when I got, when I listened to a record album, I listened to the, you know, all, all songs on side A, all side, side, songs on side B. I didn't, I didn't skip songs. I listened to them all. You know, you usually would walk away if I didn't like a song, but whatever. I was a kid. But I started getting, buying out really Focusing buying albums in the 80s. And the first two albums I ever got or ever bought, um, especially on cassette, were the soundtracks for Footloose and Ghostbusters. I listened to the full albums over and over. Because of the two soundtrack albums, I ended up searching for more by the artists on the albums. One example being Sammy Hagar. He was on the Footloose soundtrack on side two of the cassette, and I ended up looking for more by Sammy. And I eventually bought his album, VOA, which, for those who don't know, has a song, I Can't Drive 55, on it. On that album there, you know I mean? On, on that, I was able to hear the Footloose and say, hey, you know what? I like Sammy Hagar. Okay, I like uh, Kenny Loggins. I like uh, Mike Reno of Loverboy and uh, Ann Wilson of Heart. So I actually, with, with the Almost, Almost Paradise song from Footloose, I actually searched out Loverboy and also searched out uh, Heart. So there was two bands right there. Um, Ghostbusters, you know, I mean, there was Thompson Twins on there. Uh, uh, The Bus Boys, you know, and I got a chance to really listen to not, I mean, not only my parents were already listening to different types of music. I mean, my folks listened to a lot of, um, they had, you know, obviously they had their, my mom had her Beatles, or not Beatles, I wish she had her Beatles records. She had her uh, Beach Boys records. You know, I destroyed those pretty much. She had uh, the little Hondas, uh, was from back then. She had some, you know, probably Glenn Campbell, Campbell album from the early 70s. Um, that was also uh, one of the albums she got. Also had, uh, it was a mix from Columbia House Records, but it had uh, Queen of the Silver Dollar on there by Dr. Hook. So anyways, because of listening to these albums fully, I got to hear different artists. I got to, you know, or I got to listen to one artist and take a journey with that artist. And that's the reason why I buy albums. I buy albums to take a journey with the artist. However, this hasn't always been the case. Because as we got into the 90s, I found myself skipping songs that I heard it 
I listen to it. I always listen to an album the first time. But if I didn't like a song, I would skip it the next time I came across it. And it didn't matter. You know, maybe I just didn't like the song, didn't like the lyrics, or just didn't like how the singer sounded. Sounded. One example being, because I didn't get uh, Cinderella's second album, Monco Winter, until, I ha- until it was on CD. However, the song itself, Long Cold Winter, the title track, I didn't like this song at all. And I always had been skipping it. I would skip it if I made a play. It, you know, they were talking about making playlists on cassettes. If I made a playlist on cassette, Long Cold Winter was never put on there. I just didn't like the song at all. Skipping it was easier with a CD. You know, you just hit track. Or if you program it, you program it around it. You know, but I listened to that song. Uh, back in 2005 for the very first time in roughly probably about almost 20 years. And I ended up liking the song again. Hence why I'm really excited to do this podcast. I mean, and I know it's been a while since this, we've had episodes and this is kind of going off. uh, It's kind of a sidebar. So I apologize for that right now. Um, The thing is, is I want to go back and listen to some of these records some of these albums um, listen to records i've never heard or maybe artists i've only heard one album by and i just want to listen to more you know and, and give you my honest opinion you know if you know if i think a song just completely sucks i will tell you that but again this is not what we're talking about today today is not about the albums or not about we're just about why i buy albums over over cd singles or over singles i mean is because I like taking the journey. And you can't take a journey if you got two songs. You know, even even a five song, four song EP is a journey. You go from here to there. If you if you only listen to music for the hits, then buy your singles. But I sometimes sometimes I find there are better songs that are not singles. Motley Crue, listen, I'm gonna use Motley Crue again as another example. Their song, Fight for Your Rights, is the very last song on Theater of Pain, at least of the original album, not the re-release stuff that has all the bonus tracks on it. But Fight for Your Rights is, I believe it should be track number 10, is on their third album, Theater of Pain. That song is very good. Lyrically, it's completely out there. You don't expect stuff like that from a hard rock band. And one of the lines... I love, and I'll probably mess it up. I'm going to try to quote the best I can. And I quote, uh, Martin Luther told the truth. The color of our blood's the same. End quote. There's a lot of other quotes on there, on that, on that, uh, on that song. A lot of other, other parts of that song. The lyrics are good. Again, it's a very good song. But that's, you know, and, but I would never heard it if I would only bought the singles of Smoke in the Boys Room and Home Sweet Home. Anyways, let's get back off the sidebar, off this one trick pony I just pulled, which I usually don't do. You guys know this, but we'll get back to uh, uh, back to CD skipping and, and back into this. Anyways, like I was talking, I, was, I didn't listen to the, the song Long Cold Winter until 2005, and the reason why I was taking my late wife to see the band in 2005, I finally listened to the song again and enjoyed this bluesy hard rock ballad. As of the, as the midnights came, I started listening to just singles as I wanted to also be start being a DJ for hire. I had done some dances back in the 80s for our, our like junior high, but I also 
but I, w- I still wanted to be a DJ. I wanted to get the equipment. I wanted to build, you know, be a DJ for hire, go play, you know, hope, you know, not only do high school dances and stuff, but also do weddings and stuff like that. But to do that, you have to have singles. You have to have the hits. So sometimes, you know, and a lot of times with this, again, like I was stating before, the CD singles, you got multiple versions. You, know, you got a, a better dance version. You know, let's uh, use the song Watermelon Crawl by uh, Tracy Bird. You know, the original song's really good, but there's also a dance line mix if you bought the single. Okay? So just to give you an idea. However, but now we're going to, again, that was just a little sidebar again. But early 2000s, I started listening to the albums again, but still not like I had in the, in the 1980s. Most new albums were bought years after their release and after seeing said band in concert because they had opened for Motley Crue during their Crue Fest summer tours, example being Papa Roach. Today, I buy an album off of iTunes, but I, if I can find it on LP or CD, then I will still physically buy it. Last album I bought this year, or yeah, last album I bought so far was was this year, was a copy of John Karabi's One Night in Nashville, which is a live album of John and his backing band performing Motley Crue's 1994 self-titled album, which when John replaced a longtime senior Vince Neil around 2003, I only bought albums of artists that were from the 1980s. I didn't buy new bands until I could preview the album or heard enough of said album, which is a far cry from what I did in the late 80s to mid-90s when I would buy an album by an unknown or a new artist just because their album cover looked cool. But I stopped doing that altogether. But with doing this podcast, I can't wait to get into some of those albums that I have only played a couple of songs off of. And again, this is kind of reiterating, going back, I kind of went off of what I've written before, so I apologize. But, by, but, looking, but I'm also looking to buy new artists and new albums just because I like to cover art for as long as they still make albums. But if I want to hear singles, then I'll either listen to local radio stations or subscribe to Sirius XM Radio. Otherwise, I want to get lost and take that journey that the artist intended. Without albums, we may not have the song Another Brick in the Wall Part 2 by Pink Floyd, which is off their album The Wall, which is a concept album. Or we wouldn't have another great concept album which is called Operation Mindcrime by Queensryche. Some would have you believe that Apple is to be blamed for the problem with the music industry today, especially with, I, with the iTunes store, but I disagree. Like I pointed out earlier, the creation of the original MTV, most artists and record companies were only focused on two to four songs per album to, re, to be released as singles and videos. What I find funny is that the first music video shown on MTV was Video Killed the Radio Star by the Buggles. However, for those of us who grew up in small towns, which our cable channels were very limited, only saw MTV either when we were at a friend's house who had one of those big satellite dishes in their backyard or when we visited relatives whose cable packages had MTV. I saw most videos on night tracks on Superstation TBS and Radio 1990 and Night Flight on USA Network. My purchasing albums had been... had between two or three reasons. And here those reasons are one being, I knew the artist by hearing a song on the radio video on above mentioned video shows, a friend and relative had a copy of the artist's album or, or I already had their albums or already had some of their albums and I was continuing to buy their albums to 
have all their current stuff. Two, reason number two, new artists that had a cool name, in my opinion, like Metallica. I bought their album Master of Puppets because I thought the name was cool. And three, because the album cover spoke to me, which I used, I used for not only Master of Puppets, but Tesla's debut album, Mechanical Resonance. However, since 1994, I have not used option two or three. I plan on changing that soon. Do I feel that streaming is, a, is good for the music industry? Unless you are on what I call the big three, which are iTunes, Amazon Music, or Google Play Music, where you are more than likely to, catch, to get a chance to listen to a full album by streaming. I feel sites or apps like Pandora, where if you create even an artist's radio channel, you will not hear the full hear a full album by that artist. You'll only hear their hits or once in a while a obscure song. So is streaming good for the music industry? Well, I'll answer this after we go over some sales figures from 2017. In 2017, revenues from the recorded music in the United States increased 16.5% at an estimated retail value of $8.7 billion, continuing to grow from the previous year. At wholesale, revenues grew 12.6% to $5.9 billion. Similar to 2016, these increases came primarily from growth in paid music subscriptions which grew by more than 50%. This is the first time since 1999 that the U.S. music revenues grew materially for two years in a row, so which format brought in the bulk of the money? I'll be using the 2017 U.S. sales database on the RIAA website uh, called the U.S. Recorded Music Sales Volumes by format retail percentages of the $8.7 billion earned as follows. Also, just an FYI, streaming services are not listed in this in the sales by format, but I'll touch on that later as streaming become big becoming bigger a bigger player in the way people listen to music. So here are the top three from 2017 who earned the most out of the 8.7 billion dollars in retail sales. Number three, downloaded album 8.9 percent. Number two, CD 11.8 percent, and number one, download single 74.5 percent. Now, for the music industry, 2017 actually matched the 2008 retail sales at $8.7 billion. However, let's go back 10 years to 2007 when the music industry brought, brought in $10.7 billion in retail sales. And the top three formats were download single, 44.3%, CD, 27%, and ringtones and ringbacks at 23.4%. But again, let's go only... Let's only go two years back from 2007 to 2005. The music industry brought in a total of $12.2 billion in retail sales. And the top three formats were CD, 39%, download single, 36.9%, ringtones and ringbacks, 19.8%. After looking deeper into this, I really saw a trend. And I actually have a recant and have to recant an earlier statement I made. I stated earlier that I disagree that Apple is to blame for this change between single and album. Yet, when I look at the percentages through 1980 to 2004, when download single first showed up on the sales charts in 2004, albums outsold singles until 2005. Now, the first version of the iPod was, was released October 23, 2001, about eight and a half months after the Macintosh version of iTunes was released. So it took roughly four years 
after the release of the first iPod and iTunes for download singles to be number one in retail sales. Google Play Music was publicly launched on November 16, 2011, and on October 12, 2016, Amazon Music Unlimited was released in the United States. So at this time, I will recant my previous statement I dis- that I disagreed that Apple is to blame for the current status of the music industry. Now, I agree that with the creation of the iPod and iTunes store made it easier for consumers to buy singles over albums. Personally, the only time I purchased singles from Apple was two, and they were both by Motley Crue, re- released around the time of the final tour. And they had already stated they were no longer making albums. As we can see, money is in download singles and not albums. Should an artist want a recording contract or due to home recording studios and software software like GarageBand, which I use to make this podcast, and Pro Tools, we will just be looking at streaming services if there is a difference between signed or unsigned payouts and how many plays it takes to make $1,472. We'll start with Napster. First off, I didn't know Napster was still around. Unsigned artists would need to have 90,000 plays while a signed artist would, would only need 80,000 plays to make the $1,472. Another service called Tidal. Now, I've never heard of this service, but in 2015, one of Jay-Z's companies purchased Tidal for $480 million. Also in January 2017, Sprint bought 33% for $200 million. Unsigned artists would need to have 130,000 plays while a signed artist would need only 120,000 plays to make the $1,472. Again, out of these last two, it's only, it's only, only 10,000 more plays to make that kind of money between signed and unsigned. Apple Music. Unsigned, an unsigned artist would need two, 230,000 plays, while a signed artist would need 200,000 plays to make $1,472. Again, that's only 30,000 extra plays. However, as you can see, compared to Napster, that's a huge increase. I mean, even over the last one titled, they, the unsigned artist, had, you, you got to have an extra 100,000 plays to make that kind of money. And that's not very much money, guys. Google Play Music. An unsigned artist would need 250,000 plays, while a signed artist would only need 220,000 plays to make the $1,472. Again, it's a 30,000. With the big ones, it's the 30,000 gap. Spotify. Unsigned artists would need 380,000 plays, while a signed artist would need 340,000 plays to make the $1,472. Now we've really jumped up compared to where we were with Apple and Google. But now it's a 40, also it's a $40,000 difference, or 40,000 play difference between unsigned and signed. On Pandora, unsigned artists would need 1.2 million plays, while a signed artist would need 1.1 million plays to make $1,472. We really jumped up. I mean, we went from 380,000 for an unsigned artist on Spotify to 1.2 million plays on Pandora. YouTube, an unsigned artist would need, and this is getting, it's just getting, this is the last one to use, but this is getting really bad. On YouTube, an unsigned artist would need 2.4 million plays, while a signed artist would need 
2.1 million plays to make $1,472. Is that disgusting or what? Here's an example that I found online of the costs that a record company and artists are responsible for. According to the website Recording Connection, studio time can run from $30 to $200 plus per hour, depending on the studio. In most cases, an album takes 60 to 100, albums to 100 hours to finish, depending on the artist's skill level. However, most studios offer project-based recording rates. One song could cost from $50 to $500. An album could start at around $2,000. After an album is recorded, it is sent to a mastering engineer. Average rates are $100 plus per song or $500 plus per album. Smaller labels, recording costs average about $15,000 per album. But for larger labels, the average can be from $100 thousand to five hundred thousand and up the artists bear this debt which is repaid from royalties record labels pay two royalties one to the one to the artist and another to composers and publishers an artist an artist can receive 10 to 15 percent of suggested album retail minus packaging costs jewel jewel boxes and boxes and liner notes and all that good stuff composers and publishers receive 30% or more. So after hearing about these figures, albums are not worth the money to make anymore. It's cheaper to make a single and put a price tag of $1.29 to $1.99 for said digital download. But I feel streaming will be the final nail for album artists. I'd like to take a guess that within the next five to seven years, artists will no longer be making albums. I know of two so far. Weird Al Yankovic released his last album, Mandatory Fun, in 2014. However, his last single, The Hamilton Polka, was just here lately in 2018. Country artist The Band Perry, last album was Pioneer in 2013. And their last single was Stay in the Dark, released just last year in 2017. Here's two examples of artists who appeared to no longer be releasing albums because it is just too costly. Plus, the be with Best Buy no longer carrying CDs, and Target only wants to pay for what they sell instead of buying a set amount and taking a gamble whether they make or lose money. Now you have an idea why I believe within the next five to seven years, albums would be a theme of the past. Again, just my opinion. However, before this, artists before the century would just sign contracts that would give them X amount of dollars for X amount of albums. Hence why you have some greatest hits albums were sometimes released without artist permissions or approval because the artist still owes an album or compilation of their contract after the band has broken up or called it quits. All right, real quick before we move on, we start hearing a bunch of baning and whatnot. Um, the wind is going to be starting to pick up here soon as we have another storm heading our way. So, again, monsoon season in Arizona, so if you hear it, I apologize. I did best try to remove it. Anyways, back to this episode and back to where we were at. Streaming is like a radio station minus someone talking or ads. However, streaming becomes the normal. I believe they will start adding ads on streaming like which happens on YouTube now. So back to the last two questions I didn't answer. One, do I believe streaming is good for the music industry? In my opinion, no. It takes more, month, it takes more plays of a song to make a decent amount of money to recover recording cards for recording costs for the signed and unsigned artists. Only way for anyone to make money streaming is by using home recording methods and not regular studios as a cost, as the cost would be lower with home, home recording methods, but that's only for streaming and digital downloads. 
two was whether or not an artist should be signed or unsigned. I, be, I believe if you're a new artist looking to break into the music industry, then do it yourself. Don't go after record labels or recording contracts. Use Pro Tools or Apple's GarageBand and release your singles or albums yourself, as your costs will be lower for digital downloads only. Again, you're going to have the upfront cost, like, upfront cost of like, um, obviously you got to get the microphones, you got to get uh, a few extra things, you got to get a mixing board. That's going to cost you some money in the beginning, but in the long run, if you do enough, you will make that money back. Also, if you use Pro Tools, then you have to pay for the Pro Tools system. If you're looking to release physical media CDs or whatnot, you can just burn on a CDR and release it that way. You can make your own packaging. You can buy the empty jewel cases. So, again, that would still be a cheaper option. And for your ability to actually make more money than probably being with a record contract. Again, this is just my opinion. As for consumers, I believe streaming could help you hear an artist before purchasing especially a new artist. However, if it's an art, artist that you already like or have most of their albums, just like I have artists I like and have most of their albums or not all their albums, then buy their newest album. Buy it, the physical copy. If you can't get away from it, you know, you need to buy it quickly and or you need to buy a, a cheaper version, then buy the album on iTunes or Amazon uh, for Amazon Music. Uh, unlimited, unlimited music or even on Google Play. Here's why I don't like streaming or digital download of albums in my opinion. You don't have liner notes or even a physical copy in your hand. And heaven forbid if the internet or computer ever just dies or you have no way to access the internet, you won't have access to your purchased music. Which is why I will be, buy will be buying future releases on CD and LP then rip to the CD to my iTunes account and play said album on my iPod Classic or also use the download set or use a cloud to listen to my music on my iPhone. However, if I can't find said copy or due to the Arizona summer heat, I'll also, again, like I said, I'll purchase the digital copy first, but then I'll get the physical copy at a later, later date. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed this episode. It's the longest episode to date. I apologize for that. But decided this subject needed some attention. I encourage you all to go out and physically buy your music on at least CD. But if you love the vinyl format or you want to buy some older vinyl, uh, like Dave of All Things Star Wars did, he found the original St Star Wars soundtrack on LP at eBay. Then I encourage you to go, y'all go out and physically buy your music. Like I stated, at least do it on CD. But if you love the vinyl format, then I encourage that encourage you that also plus you never know what you may find at a local record store goodwill salvation army deseret industries or also ebay for your used and older music needs for new releases i recommend your local record store if you don't have one in your area area or live too far away from one then you can shop at amazon ebay barnes noble or search for a record store in a neighboring city to see if they have online shopping and we'll ship to your location as for me, I don't have a local record store, so I use Goodwill and Salvation Army for most of my used needs. I have bought LP, LP, LP lots on eBay and came with some old and near mint conditions pieces of vinyl. I also use a website called Discogs for not only adding my current collection, adding to my current collection, adding my current collection, sorry about that, but also to buy from their online store. This is where I got the, the copy of Harry Truman tribute album. I use for episode five. As far as new, I have bought some here at my local Barnes and Noble, 
I have looked on Amazon, but I've also bought from Amoeba Records, Amoeba Records in Hollywood and had, and had it shipped to my home. One little plug for Amoeba Records is if they don't have it in their Hollywood store, then your request may get filled by their other locations in San Francisco and Berkeley. They keep you informed of everything going on, and if there is a problem, they will email you or call you with, a, with the problem. Very good customer service, in my opinion. If there was a five-star rating, I would give them five stars all around. One last final set of numbers I want to look at is brought, brought by the RIAA, and it's the actual tally of the $8.7 billion of the year 2017. Earlier, I stated that the first set of numbers provided by the retail sales didn't include streaming, but the RIAA included included another percentage chart that includes streaming services. Out of the $8.7 billion overall retail sales for the music industry, streaming paid subscriptions had 65%. Digital downloads, singles and albums, was at 15%. Physical, physical albums, CDs, and LPs, 17%. And the last category is sync or synchronization which is songs in movies, commercials, TV shows, DVD, Blu-ray, and video games, and that was 3%. So out of $8.7 billion in overall retail sales, paid subscriptions for streaming was 65% of that total. Again, I firmly believe that albums will be a theme of the past as our CDs, LPs, and our cassettes get passed down to generation to generation after we have died. Maybe someone will bring to light the enjoyment of listening to albums, but more than likely not as our attention span has shrunken in, the, in this fast-paced technological world, the attention span will be even shorter in the future. Who knows? Maybe Demolition Man movies showed what the future holds when they were playing commercials as songs in the future in that movie. I still hope the future is like Doc Brown said to Marty and Jennifer at the end of Back to the P- Future Part 3 when G- Jennifer produces a note from Marty being fired earlier in the movie, but it's been erased and Doc says, and I quote, of course it's erased, end quote. Jennifer asks, and I quote, what does it mean, end quote. And Doc replies with, I quote, and I quote, it means your future hasn't been written yet. No one's has. Your future is whatever you make it. So make it a good one, both of you, end quote. In closing, I'd like to thank you for, thank you all for downloading this episode. If you haven't subscribed and this is your first time listening, please hit that subscribe button so you won't miss uh, any episodes as they come out again this used to be a uh weekly podcast um i'm hoping to get back on that weekly schedule but uh depending on life and um or monsoon weather (laughs) anyways if again if you haven't subscribed please do so so you won't miss any episodes if you would rather purchase singles or albums shoot me an email or a tweet as as what you like maybe i'll even put maybe i'll put up a couple of polls on twitter if i do please vote on the poll and I'll reveal the numbers on another episode of used and abused. You can find used and abused at or on Twitter at used abused pod. That's on Twitter at used abused pod, Instagram used and abused pod. The and is spelled out a N D again, Instagram used and abused pod email is used and abused pod at gmail.com. Again, shoot me an email on whether or not you like to buy albums or singles. Again, it's usedandabusedpod at gmail.com. Again, the and is spelled out, A-N-D. On, you can find Used and Abused Pod on YouTube also. That's Used and Abused Pod. Again, and is spelled out. 
You can find Used and Abused on iTunes, Anchor, Google Play Music, Google Podcasts, Pocket Cast, Overcast, Breaker, CastBox, and or Radio Public, and now Spotify. Please subscribe so you don't miss a new episode that will be coming very soon. If you have a friend, spouse, siblings, and or parents who you think they may like this podcast or episode, show them how to download, listen, or even subscribe them to Use and Abuse a Music Podcast. I would tell you to have your kids listen, but due to eventual episodes, including this one containing some adult language or swear words, I would say parental guidance should be observed. Also, please rate and review Use and Abuse a Music Podcast. Five stars, please. Five stars. And until next week. No, actually, not until next week. Until the next episode. Have a great week and weekend. Be kind to everyone. And I quote Doc Brown again. And I quote, remember, your future is whatever you make it. So make it a good one. End quote. And keep the music playing.